0: It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Okay, so we're now jumping into part two of my interview with Stan Mitchell. We are jumping right into the middle of the conversation, so there's not going to be much of a a lead-in. We're just going to jump right in, so just buckle up, get ready. We're just going to pick up where we left off, and I'm so excited for you guys to get into this part of the interview. It's really good stuff. Thanks for watching. I know there are people who are listening, watching, who relate to Scripture as this is a closed book. This is the word of God, but the word of God says, I can tell you how many comments I got from my coming out video, the word of God clearly says. It's like that copy and paste statement just got sent out to a bunch of people and they all just came at me with the same thing. I'm like, what would you say to people who are approaching this conversation and approaching the Bible with that locked in understanding or posture? How do you help them consider what if what I'm saying the Bible clearly says isn't clear or I can
1: read this differently. What would you say to those people? I I understand and I said that for a long time myself and I sincerely said that. The one thing that I'm very reticent to do is ever question people's sincerity or their motives. I just don't find a bunch of demons any more than I find a bunch of celestial angels in this. It's a bunch of humans somewhere in between. So I give people the benefit of the doubt because I look back and I give myself that generous assumption. I was sincere when I was saying all of that. I agree with you, the one thing that I hear over and over again, if not daily, Almost daily is, but Stan. I mean, it's an incredulous, confused look, and I know it's sincere. I remember it, Stan. On on this, I mean, the Bible's clear, right? Where do I go when I hear that? I don't respond to that by saying, "No, it's not. You're an idiot. <laughs> You're wrong." Any more than I want them doing that to me. What I generally, how I generally respond to that, and it's genuine, is I get it. But then I do my best to show those folk what I'm asking them to do around this issue, an issue that they have assumed is clear. What I generally try to do is show them that they have already done this same process, this same exploration around other issues that by their definition are equally clear so i'll generally when someone says you know but stan this one's clear i say okay i'll give you that you obviously know i don't agree with that let me tell you how i feel when i hear you say it's clear i hear you impugning either my heart or my mind because i don't and i'm confused by that because i don't think you think i'm dumb and i don't think you really think i'm an ill-intended person so if i'm a generally smart guy with a good heart For you to say it's clear, aren't you really saying it's clear to you? Because it's obviously not clear to me. And I know you didn't mean it that way, but it's kind of offensive for you to say it's clear. Mm. Because what you're really saying is it's clear to you. And if it's not clear to me as it's clear to you, something's wrong with me. I try to start relationally there. We don't get anywhere burning bridges. 99% of the time when I come back with that response, there's a pause. I mean, these are good people. They generally say, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I, and I, I don't mean that. They don't know exactly where to go from there, but they know in their heart that's not what they're trying to do. Yeah. Second thing that I'll say is, okay, so past that. past you hurting my feelings. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I've hurt your feelings. Here's what I would like to say. Okay, the Bible's clear. Tell me if this is clear. 1 Peter 2. Slaves, be submissive to your masters, even if they treat you unjustly and beat you without cause deep breath tell me if this is clear for to this you were called by christ in the same way you wives in the same way as the slaves you wives be submissive to your husbands even if they're disobedient to the word for in doing so you may win them when they observe your chaste and respectful behavior in other words slaves human beings be willing to subject yourself to unjust suffering on the grounds you might, through that unjust suffering, redeem the one who is perpetrating it. Wives, be willing to live in abusive settings because per Jesus and Moses, the only reason to ever divorce is because of infidelity. So as slaves subject themselves, wives, you also subject yourself knowing that if you hang in there, you may win them. Sandwiched between those two texts, 1 Peter 2 and 3, there's only one text between them and that is, for Christ left us an example, who when reviled, reviled not again, but trusted himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. And all we like sheep are going astray, but have been brought home by the shepherd of our soul. In other words, Christ redeemed the people who crucified him by virtue of the blood they caused to be shed. So Peter was building a case Not that slavery was justified, not that abusive marriages were justified, but that Christ's example was for people to remain in abusive scenarios and use the abuse exacted on them to redeem. That's strong, a strong theological case, and I'll tell you how strong it is and how clear it is. It took. Christians in Europe to the 14th or 15th century to begin to recognize that slavery as an institution was evil. But they only recognized that it was evil if that slavery was between Christians. Christians couldn't enslave Christians. That was highly correlational to light-skinned people since that doctrine was being developed in Europe. So we didn't abolish slavery, we abolished the slavery of other Christians. So we moved east toward brown and south toward even darker people. And it wasn't necessarily the color of their skin, but it was the nature of them being pagans, not Christians. It took the Christian church another four centuries to conclusively realize not only is slavery as an institution abominable in this regard, it's abominable if it's any human being. And you know why it took us 19 centuries to get there? A few texts like 1 Peter 2. Texts like 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul said, if you were a slave when Christ saved you, do not seek to be free. There was nothing in Paul, Peter, or any of the New Testament writings that pushed for the abolition of slavery. Based upon a first century human consciousness, there was not a capacity to stretch that far. So they stretched as far as they could, and they tried to redeem that institution. That's how Scripture is clear. When you say Scripture is clear, you have to answer why there's a Protestant and Catholic divide. You have to answer why that Protestant Reformation did not yield one consistent, clear denomination, but 40,000 denominations later. We laugh when we say that, but that has to be considered. Within the Pentecostal world I grew up in, United Pentecostal, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, Church of God in Christ, Assembly of God, Church of God. When the Church of God split, the headquarters of the new group went across the street, and now they're the Church of God of Prophecy. Church of God out of Malden, Missouri, Church of God out of Anderson, Indiana, Church of Christ, Independent Christian Churches, Disciple of Christ, United Methodist, Southern Methodist, Free Methodist. Scripture's clear? Is it really that clear? It's so clear that when God told Peter, rise, kill, and eat, Peter said no and began almost quoting Scripture to God. It's so clear that for 700 years, no one saw what Isaiah 53 was really going to mean. It was so clear That when Peter looked at James, the brother of Jesus, full of the Spirit, and said, I shared the gospel with them. Scripture's so clear that James, full of the Spirit, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, looked at Peter and said, forget baptism. You shouldn't even have eaten with those people. Scripture's so clear, Peter looked at him and didn't argue the text. Peter looked and said, "I I don't know how to answer that. All I do know is I saw the Holy Spirit fall on them as it did on us in the beginning. At that point, James was a good enough, sincere enough Christian, incarnational. He didn't throw scripture out. He didn't lean back and say, well, scripture's stupid. He also didn't lean in and say, that's not true. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit. He leaned back and thoughtfully said, how do we argue this? And evidently went back to the text and argued it through until he could reconcile the experience with the text. And in Acts 15, weeks, months later, He stands up and defends the experience of Peter, an experience he earlier had rejected. He now defends it and quotes beautifully Amos 9. Amos 9 didn't change. His reading of the text changed. I'm calling for us to remember that at the center of our hermeneutic should be the element of humility. This is not only have we been wrong before, and stood corrected and been capable of being corrected. The foundation of the Christian church, right out of the chute, you don't have to wait till the 19th century. You don't have to wait till women. You don't have to wait till marital abuse. You don't have to wait till slavery. You don't have to wait to all of these things. Right out of the chute, the church was built upon the foundational assumption that 99.9% of the world's population had no access to the gospel unless they converted to Judaism. We were wrong and we were corrected that's not embarrassing that that's in the text. That's important that that's in the text. We have always carried at the center of our hermeneutic an element of humility that says we've been wrong before, could we be wrong here? And there's no greater reason to ask that question than seeing suffering in the body of Christ. So when you look at Paul, and you hear the things that
0: Paul authoritatively ushers out, you mentioned in conversations prior, previous to this, how you read Paul you're instructed to handle that the way you see Paul read Jesus, right, and handle him. Can you explain some of that dynamic in terms of how you interpret the text, how you hold
1: these things, where you do, how you read it? A lot of so-called progressive liberals like myself, I, I don't like those terms because terms are so limiting. I consider myself traditional because i think inherent to the tradition of christianity is progressivism so my progressivism is not at odds with my traditionalism built into the tradition of christianity is this idea of a progressive unfolding truth by my estimation conservative i I feel like i'm conservative honestly i'm not doing wordplay i i just see the limitations of words and how they close ears and set us against one another I am trying my best to be conservative in the sense that I'm trying to conserve what I think is the heart of God and the life of Jesus. But those that fall into the camp of having a more liberal progressive interpretation of scripture, we often within our group build up an animus or an antipathy toward Paul. You hear a lot of people in our circles be like, well, you know, I I love Jesus, but I don't like Paul so much. (laughs) Uh, I'm not... I'm not trying to do a two-step here, but Paul is a theological hero to me. I value Paul deeply. Paul taught me more than perhaps anyone in the wake of the life of Jesus as the chief apostle in the early Christian church. He taught us how to interpret the text, how to treat the text, how to stand humbly and yet curiously on the shoulders of those who went before us. A really good example of that is 1 Corinthians 7. Paul was in Ephesus when he received a letter from the Corinthian church across the Aegean Sea in the southern boot of Greece was that church called Corinth that was probably, historians tell us, maybe a church of 60 to 100 people at its largest, but it was one of the early churches that Paul had established. It was a mix of Hellenized Jews, people who had long been Jews but had been raised in that Mediterranean rim outside of Judea, and then Gentile people who had converted into the church without a pass-through. Judaism. So Paul had established that church and continued to pastor it literarily, which was a difficult process, I'm sure. In the beginning, a nascent movement of any kind, leadership is always, you know, a difficulty raising up leadership. So Paul, as much as I'm sure he would have loved to have planted Timothy's and Titus's everywhere. He had to continue pastoring these people. So one of his journeys, he was across the way in Ephesus and the Corinthian church, knowing that he wasn't going to be there anytime soon, sent him a letter. And in the letter, evidently there were questions, important questions, uh, questions uh, about life. They ask him many questions because when you read his first Corinthian letter, he often, you can tell at the beginning of the chapters, he's saying, now concerning the question you ask me. Well, one of the questions they evidently asked him was, what, what do you do with Christian women who are married to not Christian men? A study of history tells us that Corinthian women already had a, a difficult time. We're living in a pretty patriarchal, if not misogynistic society. And for a woman to convert to this new religion that's not within the accepted Roman religious, um, well, I, I don't know exactly how it was with the Romans, but it does seem that they had their own religion within the empire, and then there were some acceptable ones that they had learned they could live and let live with. Well, Christianity had not earned that right yet. Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, was very much wary of new religions because there was often zealotry and there were often geopolitical ambitions within those religions. So for a woman to convert to Christianity in Corinth and her husband not convert, it's not hard to imagine that would put her in an abusive situation, maybe an intensely abusive situation. At least those are kind of the surmises that we have that led them to say, hey, could a woman, can she get out of this marriage with a pagan husband? Paul's response to that in 1 Corinthians 7 is profound, and it's really a lens through which I now wrestle with pastoral circumstances, pastoral situations, and the biblical text. Paul literally said in response to that question, concerning this question you ask me, I have no commandment from the Lord. Now that automatically strikes me as strange. This letter was being written probably in the early 50s. We know the Gospels were not written until 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe later. But while the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't written, we do know based upon the Gospels that there were extant manuscripts from which they built their story, and certainly an oral tradition. And Paul very well knew that oral tradition, and within the bounds of that oral tradition, 20 years after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 20 years later, Paul knowing that Jesus had talked about divorce and remarriage. Paul didn't immediately say, well, that's an open and shut case because the Pharisees came to Jesus one day, you know, a scenario that Matthew, Mark, Luke all addressed. Paul didn't immediately say, this question you asked me about, can a woman divorce a husband if he's not a believer? Well, Jesus already said, when the Pharisees came to him and said, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? There's only one cause and that's pranaya, sexual immorality. He didn't go there well aware that Jesus had talked about that, well aware that the church had wrestled with that, no doubt, in the following two decades, Paul said, I have no commandment. He said, but I do want to give an opinion. Just that statement. If we would take Paul the way Paul took Paul, I think we would realize kind of a wooden-headed literalism that takes everything he said as a fixed point, propositional, constitutional truth, never to be amended or revisited, I think that's a real mistake. And I don't think Paul would have intended that because Paul certainly didn't take Jesus that way. 20 years after Jesus talked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, Paul didn't look at those words and say, "Mm, cookie cut, impose it on this. Something about the context had so shifted for Paul. New information, new circumstances had led Paul to say what Jesus said was valid, but the context was so significantly different than this context. and. Automatically, I can see the context being Jesus was speaking to people within the same covenantal religion, two Jewish people married to one another. Now, all of a sudden, there's this new form of Judaism following this Messiah Christ where believers are married to unbelievers and adult people are converting and they're coming with marriages that were built on another foundation. I mean, Paul was able to look at Jesus' words and not dismiss them, but say, that's not a commandment easily imposed upon this circumstance. He also was wary enough of his own limitations and clear by my estimation that God wasn't just dictating through him exactly what to say. That he said, I'm gonna give an opinion on this. He said, I'm gonna give it under the canopy of God's mercy as one who's been counted worthy by the mercy of God to give an opinion. And he went on to give an opinion of how a woman could in certain circumstances be free from the covenantal bind of a marriage if the unbeliever chose to depart from her. Paul said if the unbeliever chooses to stay, and he didn't have any caveats that said if he stays and is not abusive, if he stays. For 19 centuries, I mean, I lived in that church that women were forced to stay with abusive husbands because Paul said stay until unless they. He didn't say unless they beat you too much. He said unless they choose to leave. Mike, he gets to the end of that chapter after giving an opinion on that issue that Literalist would say contradicted Jesus, but I don't believe it contradicted Jesus. I think he found, use a mathematical term, he found the slope in the words of Jesus, the spirit of what Jesus was saying, and then extrapolated with new information that slope and trajectory onto a new circumstance. Man, if that was happening 20 years after the life of Jesus, is it not happening 2,000 years after the life of Paul? I'm doing with Paul on issues like slavery, women, the LGBTQ, I'm doing with Paul what Paul taught me to do with Paul by what Paul did with Jesus and what Jesus did with Moses. It's very important for us to realize that in that text, 1 Corinthians 7, he didn't just talk about that particular situation. He also talked about slaves. Actually the 1 Peter 2, 3 text that I earlier talked about is a Petrine denomination. Revisit of Pauline theology. Peter said in that epistle that Paul was hard to understand, but he didn't contradict Paul, so he tried to get the cookies to the bottom shelf. So, 1 Peter 2 and 3, when you read it, after reading 1 Corinthians 7, you're like, this is. Absolutely a revisit, a commentary on 1 Corinthians 7, Pauline theology, because in that chapter, Paul not only talked to people whose spouses abandoned them, their freedom to move on. He didn't say you move on, but you still have to remember what Jesus said, and you have to wait to hear if they've had sex with somebody else, and then that <laughs> justifies you. <moving> he <laughs> didn't say any of that. He also said that slaves, if they find themselves in slavery when Christ calls them, stay there. And he also told widows not to marry again. He told virgins it'd be better for them not to marry. All of that because he said there was a present crisis. We don't know exactly what that present crisis was. A lot of people have assumed it was Paul's belief that Jesus was coming back shortly and we needed to get our work done. If that's the assumption, then he was wrong. Paul knew that he had the possibility of being wrong. He knew he was working with malleable situations when you're dealing incarnationally with people. And so he concludes the entire chapter by saying, and on these matters, I believe I have the mind of the Spirit. You think you have the mind of the Spirit? You're Paul. <laughs> so I don't think the problem was is with Paul. I think 1 Corinthians 7 is a beautiful doctrinal, theological, pastoral example of how we should treat Scripture and tradition and present context. I'm not in any way contradicting Paul any more than Jesus was contradicting Moses. I'm trying to fulfill the trajectory of Paul. And you know who taught me how to do that? Paul. You mentioned in this conversation,
0: we are the body of Christ. You're talking about this incarnational theology, right? right? From what this whole scenario you're describing, this Paul interpreting Jesus, interpreting Moses, right? They're going on that trajectory of the
1: slope. What are you saying that means for believers today? I think people like you and I who come from Pentecostal backgrounds and still value things that I suppose we all call the supernatural gifts. You know, First Corinthians 12, tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discernment, faith, miracle healings, those spiritual gifts. And I, I want to say this to those who don't come from Pentecostal backgrounds, there is a real softening of that divide. As a boy growing up, it was the non-Pentecostals and the Pentecostals almost as strong as the Catholics and Protestants. That middle wall, to use Paul's language in Ephesians, is coming down. And my Baptist and Methodist and Lutheran friends are not dismissing those gifts. And the charismatic movement has kind of blended those two traditional wesleyan pentecostal worlds with non-pentecostal worlds so for people like you and me who value the idea of god communicating i mean that's that's what we believe and i I still believe i don't have a problem with prophecy i do sometimes have a problem with prophets (laughs) (laughs) i think the worst thing that ever happened to the spiritual gifts are when they were named because then all of a sudden people have this thing They can walk up and say, hey, I have a word of wisdom for you. I like a word of wisdom when the person delivering it doesn't even know they're delivering it. I think that's the safest place. I do believe that God speaks in a lot of different ways. I value that God speaks literally through what we call the Bible. So I very much value that God speaks, and as I said, literally through Scripture. But I don't believe that the Bible is the only way God communicates with us. And honestly, neither do my conservative evangelical friends we don't need to straw man one another. And a straw man is like to build a case to make the other side look foolish and say they're the one building the case because they're not making that case. No, I don't have any of my conservative friends who say the only way God communicates is through the Bible. What they do say is that is the primary, that is the ultimate authority. All other ways that you feel God may have communicated have got to come back and be measured against that ultimate benchmark. Within even the Anglican world, there was the idea of the milk, the chair that you set on to milk the cow, the milking stool. It was a three leg prong, tradition, experience, and scripture but the longest leg was scripture. In the Wesleyan quadrangle, it's scripture, experience, reason, and tradition. I may have gotten those wrong, but that's the (laughs) idea. There's multiple ways. But one thing that is common within the traditional church is that scripture is the ultimate benchmark by which you measure those things. And I don't mind that. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. The point I would make in not agreeing with that would come from scripture itself. I suppose the case that I'm making there is even thinking about what was said in John 1: In the beginning was the Word. So we talk about the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. So the Word of God, the clearest communication of God, we believe, you know, traditional Christianity was in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died, was buried, resurrected, and then didn't become the district superintendent or bishop, he ascended, went back, sits at the right hand, receives from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he pours out on all of us, ever lives to make intercession, all of that. I value that. Where then is the Word of God? Is the Word of God just there? I I think the Word of God is distributed into different mediums. And I think the clearest is not the Bible necessarily but the clearest is the body of Christ. I mean, if there is anything that could be remotely resemblant to a transfer of responsibility, the word was made flesh, well, the body of Christ is still flesh, it's just many parts. That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, back to the spiritual gifts conversation, Paul said, let all prophesy, let them do it humbly, let them do it and judge, let the others judge, In other words, there's an admission the Word of God can come richly through anyone, from those we consider the least to those we consider the most. God can use human mediums through which to speak. It's an imperfect medium, so we need to have the others judging. There needs to be an assessment made. In my mind, the Word of God rests dominantly in the body of Christ. The word still made flesh. But I also believe a part of that body of Christ expression is our literary record, that spiritual travel diary, those 27 books that we worked hard the first three or four centuries of the church. Our Catholic brothers and sisters remind us of this. We didn't start with the Bible. We started with an oral tradition, an apostolic rule of faith that was passed on. We had probably hundreds of books. It was that apostolic rule of faith, that passing on of those who sit at the feet of the apostles by which we measured which of the books were to be included in the canon. Canon didn't come along till the middle of the fourth century or so. It wasn't decided there. We were wrestling. What were we wrestling with? We were wrestling with which of these books are in sync and are resonant with the tradition that we received from Jesus. That's where our Catholic brothers and sisters do have a, have a, a legitimate claim here that before there was the book, there was church tradition. I value tradition. That passing on. I value the books that we wrote. I value the experience of a congregation to be the body of Christ and for the Word of God to come through. I value relationships with human beings that I know God speaks to me. I value that God speaks through children. God speaks through nature. God speaks through experiences. God speaks through intuition. God speaks through science. God speaks through reason. And I think, again, using Scripture, the literary text. The wise man, Solomon, said that we should always subject ourselves to the multitude of counselors. And he described that as a safe place. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. What you've gone through in the last year and specifically the last couple of months, the last month even, I know good and well, you didn't find one guru or one medium and say, this needs to give me the answers, all the wisdom. But you talked to a lot of people, you read a lot, you listened, you prayed, you thought reasonably, you listened to science. And the multitude of counselors, there's safety. And even when I'm working with evangelical people, which I often do on this, I generally get out a grease board in in the groups where I'm working, and I say, without leading as I just led, I just start with a conversation of how has God spoken to you? And with evangelical people, I will fill up a grease board. What's a grease board? Um, A whiteboard. A whiteboard. A (laughs) grease board. We're different generations. (laughs) Mike, I'll fill up a whiteboard with dozens of ways these traditional people have experienced the voice of god adrian rogers the great baptist pastor from memphis used to wonderfully say he said often he would say well the lord spoke to me and he said one time a woman asked him you mean audibly and his response was no much louder you know i i know that voice dreams visions the danger is when one counselor becomes an idol and all of the others are dismissed. That's dangerous. Then that becomes bibliolatry, or preacher-olatry, or church-olatry, or science-olatry. You know, you're making an idol of one thing. Again, with conservative people, I'll fill up the whiteboard. And then with them not knowing where I'm going, I'll begin to show how the Bible, they put literature up there. Most evangelical people, Max Licato has had a greater influence on their life than Habakkuk say, so, well, well, no, that's not New Testament. Well, okay, Max Licato has had a bigger influence. C.S. Lewis has had a bigger influence than Philemon or Second Timothy. God speaks through these. And so that's the way I see scripture. It is one voice. And I don't know that I give any of those voices the longest leg, but I do measure them against one another. And the experience of the body of Christ LGBTQ members of the body of Christ, that was not the final voice for me. It wasn't the only voice for me. I don't really have to have a final or an only voice. I don't have to make one bigger than the other, but there's safety in listening to all of those things. When credible institutions, through credible, academic, double-blind, you know, good studies are telling me that 12 and 13 and 14-year-old Christian kids who happen to be gay or trans are attempting suicide six to eight times more often, not than heterosexual kids, but than LGBTQ kids raised in affirming homes. When they tell me that not only are they attempting suicide six to eight more times raised in rejecting, not just throwing them out of the house, but just telling them God doesn't approve of this, who you are is sinful. Those 13-year-old children who are attempting six to eight times more often their attempts are five to six times more likely to end their life or hospitalize them. I'm not going to make that information an idol and not listen to tradition scripture. I didn't do that, but I'm also not going to be inhumane and listen to this scientific study that also is very, very correlative with human experience and dismiss that. They have to be measured against one another
0: oh man that's so good i'm so glad i got this on video and that you guys get to watch it um stan's brilliant i'm so thankful for his voice in my life and the work that he's doing in the world we obviously just cut off in the middle of the conversation this was part two we're gonna do part three in another session and i hope you check that out as well stan is just doing such great work in the world of helping people recognize and understand the plight of the lgbtq plus community now specifically as it pertains to the bible and the church check out part three If you're part of the LGBTQ plus community, I wanted to tell you about special opportunities and resources available here at NUMA that I wanna make sure you know about. Being a queer Christian today is a lot of work. There's a lot of opposition and misunderstanding and prejudice going on. And to work through all that takes support. I want to let you know firstly that in our living your legend coaching my team is specifically trained to help you walk in the spirit as a queer person addressing the things coming up in your heart the things around you standards things you want to go after we are here to support you there so if you want one-on-one attention and someone to walk with you in that process living your legend coaching is for you if you need help understanding how queer theology and the Bible go together, I'm putting together a series called Rainbow Road. It's already live now on Numa Plus. That's available for you to check out if you want to work out your theology. If you're looking for a more relational approach, I personally am doing a mentorship group called The Rainbow Room, where it's only for LGBTQ plus people. We will gather on a weekly basis. I will provide mentorship, guidance, and support, as well as a community. We will all walk through this process together. What does it look like to be gay in the church, following Jesus in today's day and age? This group is for you. And lastly, if you're planning on coming out, or if you were outed, or if your coming out experience wasn't ideal, I wanted to let you know that we here at NUMA love our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters. We are gonna be hosting a coming out party on June 1st. That's a place for you to get to have your coming out for the first time or to redeem your coming out experience. We wanna celebrate you. We wanna surround you with people who love you, believe in you, accept you fully as who you are. And we wanna make sure this is a celebratory experience, one that's affirming and embracing of you. If you're interested in any of these things, please email us at contact at That email address is in the description of this episode. My team will happily provide all the information you need for the areas that you're looking for. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out mikemyashiro.com.